The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, especially folks who are new here for the first time. Feel free to come up and say hello at the end if you'd like, or introduce yourself to Tom or Dan if you have any questions about the center. So we've been using a complimentary text the last number of months, almost for a year now. Um, Guy Armstrong's book, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. And now we're on page or chapter 20 for those who are reading along. And he's really summarizing a lot of the teachings. There's just one more chapter after this, which actually, if you might remember, we covered early on this intersection of emptiness and compassion. That's chapter 21. But we'll spend a couple more weeks on the book. And uh, in particular, practically, about how to integrate these teachings into our sitting meditation practice and then, of course, into just how we use our mind throughout the day. And it is a pretty subtle practice. It's, you know, when we're sort of in the heat of the moment and aversion's been triggered or you know, we're feeling a little fried from the day or we're feeling a little obsessive about something, when our mind is in its more ordinary state of being reactive and in its established patterns, it's a little subtle to, in a moment, invite our mind to be aware of the awareness until we get some momentum. But when those moments of the day when our mind isn't so busy. We're not in the middle of interacting with other people. We're sitting, sipping a cup of tea, looking at the bird feeder, or walking in a place that's not that agitating, or doing our formal meditation time. Then it's it's actually really good. And it's something, it's about doing it repeatedly, right? So it's not just about being interested in awareness in one moment but it's about repeatedly being interested in the awareness, not as an idea or a concept, but as a lived or direct experience in the moment. Because it's it's cumulative, like each time my mind is actually interested, actually curious, actually follows through with the interest, and in a sense, checks on the lived or actual experience reality of awareness in a moment, it learns a little bit. And cumulatively, if the mind does that a couple dozen times a day, or maybe more or less, right? then cumulatively, that's a lot of learning after a week, a month, two years, a couple decades of that kind of uh, interest. The mind becomes different. In the same way, if the mind never gets interested in this knowing aspect of the mind or this awareness aspect of the mind, then our mind will remain oblivious forever, right? So it's either we use life or lived experience as the context or a support for learning, or we don't. And this is, you know, surprising, maybe not surprisingly, hopefully not too surprising. You know, awareness is the most relevant thing. <laughs> I mean, it it sounds like as soon as you say that, oh yeah, awareness, consciousness, whatever, it is relevant. 
And remember, it's not about, uh, there can be a tendency, and definitely this is a shadow in, uh, in Buddhism, or can be a shadow in Buddhism, to somehow rarefy awareness or knowing as some equivalent of heaven. Like, if I can only wake up to pure awareness or grasp pure awareness or become pure awareness, then I'm home free, right? It's actually, not, last week, you can listen to the talk, it's on uh, online, on our, you can get it through our website, but you know, I called it um, something like emptiness as a pragmatic teaching, right? So seeing the awareness and seeing the empty nature of awareness, that the awareness, that part of the mind that knows experience, that it's empty, in the sense of not referring back. There is knowing, but the knowing doesn't refer back to a knower. And that can be directly experienced by paying attention, right? So that's what we mean by this intersection or this coming together. So in terms of paying attention, we first pay attention to awareness, and then we start, because of the um, deepening of awareness of awareness, right? The mind is now beginning to understand or discern the nature of awareness. It begins to sense, it can actually look at that the awareness that's being known or being intuitive sensed is empty of anything else, empty of referring back to anything. So it's just like a maturing or a deepening of the insight into that part of the mind that knows. And how do we know that there's awareness that knows? Well, because objects are being known. Sights are being seen, sounds are being heard, touches are being felt, thoughts are being known. So that experience of something being known, as I mentioned last week, you can tune into the, and this is the habit, is to kind of get interested in the particulars of what's being known. Or even more true, we get interested in the meaning the mind gives, the perception or the concept that arises around experiences that are being known. So I see Mary sitting there. That visual experience of seeing somebody is being known for an instant, but then the perception, oh, that's Mary. Now that's, that's an idea that's being known. And then I can know that idea and I can know that idea and there'll be different riffs on that idea. Like this is what I know about Mary. You know, this is what I think about Mary. This is the feeling, the emotional feeling I have about Mary. Right? So all that would be sort of mental activity being known. So there's the particular specific aspects of the object that's being known, and often that turns into the perception, the ideas we have of the object that's being known, that also ideas, that's also an object being known, right? We call it a mental object being known as opposed to one of the five physical senses being known. But in a way, it's the same thing. It's something being known, whether it's a concept being known, perception or even emotion, or a sight, a sound, a smell, a touch, a taste being known. But now we're really getting interested in that it's being known, that the object or the experience is being known, being known, being known. And we're kind of over time with some confidence and with some continuity getting a sense of like, 
I mentioned in the guided meditation that awareness isn't stained by the knowing, remains unaffected by the knowing. I mean, we've known a lot of things, whatever this mind or heart that does the knowing is the knowing. It's known a lot of things, really sad, heavy, dark, painful things, and really, hopefully, beautiful things in our lives, right? But can you say from your own direct experiencing or sense, intuitive sense of awareness, that it somehow is feeling burdened by having done all that knowing previously? Is your knowing, the knowing that's here knowing, does it seem stained or contaminated by all the knowing that it's done? No, I mean, not for me at least. I don't know about for you. And then if it does in a moment seem contaminated or burdened, you'll notice that that burdensomeness is something being known by the awareness, but not the awareness itself. Does that make sense? So your awareness may seem colored by you know, some residual from having had a bad day or having had a good day. But if you're really honest and clear and curious, you'll see, no, 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 that color that the awareness appears to have is just another thing being known by the awareness. It isn't the awareness itself. No matter how the awareness seems colored or shaped by mood, by attitude, by having had a bad life, a hard life, or having had a really privileged, easy life, that that turns out to be just another thing being known in the moment. And again, it's not to make a big deal about awareness, but it really helps the mind learn something. And in simple terms, the mind is learning that everything is a natural process. And studying, in a sense, studying awareness gets us closer to this insight, this deepening understanding or this maturing of understanding that what this is, this mind-body experience or this life or who I am, what I am, is a natural process, not anything other than a natural process. And as a natural process, there is a very um, potent absence, very alive, significant absence of friction, absence of weight. And we, we discern that. We actually sense that in moments as we're living our life in a set, doing whatever we're doing out in the world, right? And the mind is in balance and there's an intuitive sense. It's just stuff being known, just stuff being known. There's a kind of curiosity about how the awareness is unstained. And it sort of opens a door into a deeper insight of this, all of this, whatever there can be in this, being a natural process. But this is not a philosophical idea that's arising in the mind. This is a direct discernment or understanding. And the sort of uh, residual flavor of that understanding as it comes online, for lack of a better way of talking about it, is freedom or effortlessness. And that nothing needs to be kept out, right? That this intimacy, this openness, 
the sensitivity is fundamentally not a problem. So there's no what we might call neurotic mental activity around armoring or defending the heart or mind from what it's sensitive to, including what it might remember or what it might sense in the moment. Right? There's no effort made to affect the sensitivity, the clarity, the intimacy. That's sort of the fruiting or the fruit of that insight is both a sense of freedom and a purification or a beautification, refinement of engagement. How this life, this mind-body, me, engages everything in my life, you know, whatever the next moment might be. Not afraid of being exposed or intimate or not afraid of connecting, not afraid of that humility of like showing up with humility. I don't need to defend. There's no sense of somebody needing to defend itself by having an idea of what's happening in the moment. Nor is the mind afraid of an idea, but it's not dependent. It's not using my idea, my way of defining the present moment as a defense from being intimate. So we have both the value that our ideas give, right? Because they can be useful ideas without the um, obscuration or the... um, Because the problem of ideas isn't the idea itself. The problem with concepts or ideas that we have is that the mind can take them to be more than what they are. So that dependence or attachment or identification with thought is what makes thought problematic, thoughts problematic, not the thought themselves. Thinking is a very useful skill. So if you ever think that Buddha, or Buddhism more generally, is about like pathologizing thinking, it's a misunderstanding. But it's a radical transformation in how the mind uses or understands thoughts. That does change. Right? It's a, they're a skillful means. It's a tool, a very useful tool in many, in many ways. But it's gotten a little pathological because the sense of self, the sense of separation, depends on this neurotic, unhelpful habit of the mind taking thought to be more than what they are taking concepts or ideas to be more than what they are. It's just a thought being known. That's what it is. But no, no, I'm thinking that. Or that thought is, like a lot of times, the mind presumes that the thought is the reality, the concept is the reality, when it's just a thought being known. It's very interesting. This is another thing you can play with. When the mind is interested in awareness, you can really notice the difference between this orientation where the mind realizes this is just something being known and then the other habitual orientation, which is identification with the thought. And you can go back and forth in moments, like especially sticky thoughts about thoughts we have about ourselves. I'm no good or I'm having a good set. 
So it doesn't matter whether it's a negative thought or a positive thought. But you can notice like what it feels like when the mind is identified with that thought, as if that thought points to an essential reality versus it's just something being known in the moment. It's really it's like two different realities. One comes with a psychic weight, entanglement, what we call in Buddhism dukkha, sense of suffering, however subtle it might be. And the other comes with a sense of freedom, the absence of that suffering, that absence of that weight. So this is from um, Guy Armstrong's book, Chapter 20. He writes, What could be closer to us than awareness? What could be more ever-present? What could be more obvious? It's like what Suzuki Roshi said about Zen meditation. I don't know if you know who Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, but he was a very important force as Buddhism kind of got spread here in the West. He wrote a book, or it was really a transcription of some of his discussions with a group um, affiliated with the San Francisco Zen Center. came out maybe around 1970, the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It's like what Suzuki Roshi said about Zen meditation. Quote, this practice started from beginningless time and will continue into endless future. Strictly speaking, for a human being, there is no other practice than this practice. Right? Awareness of awareness. That's really what we're doing here. Even if you use a lot of mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the body, it's all in support of developing sort of this awareness of consciousness because pragmatically it sets the mind up for an insight, right? It's a pragmatic step, a useful step for the mind to realize that what all of this is, every single aspect of what this is, it's a natural process. And that recognition of this experience as a human being or body-mind experience as a natural process is in direct opposition to the habitual idea that this is me apart from nature or whatever you call that's out there. Right? There's me here. This is our usual sense, probably right now to some degree, the sense each of us has that, yeah, I'm getting, I'm hearing what I'm hearing, what Mark's saying over here, wherever that over here is. We never are very careful about that sense of separation. It goes unexplored, right? We don't really look at it because we're so certain in it, we don't investigate it. So in a way, we're investigating it, but not investigating the philosophical idea of separation or being apart. We're investigating our actual experience and finding that that separate self isn't to be found here. All that's to be found here is what? A natural process. That's all that's found here, something being known. And that, what's found, is empty of anything else. And that, as that sinks in, integrated in, the heart, the mind rests more and more with, trusts more and more, then this sense of effortlessness and frictionlessness 
and burden, burdensomeness, burdensomelessness, <laughs> and that being burdened, right, by life, by existence, it just evaporates in moments, right? And then sustains that lightness, that freedom, freedom to be intimate, freedom to show up, to respond. That's how you know the freedom. It's not freedom because I don't have any obligations or because everything around me is perfect. You know, as I joke a lot, being on the South Shore or the North Shore, for me, you know, in the perfect place, not too windy, not too cold, not too warm, no bugs, none of that crassness of tourism, you know, none of that. You know how we get this sort of elitist ideas of like what's perfect, um, only cool people around us, <laughs> right? We have all these ideas of what utopia, what perfection is. But the thing about the the sense of freedom that arises is that, you know, in Buddhism we make it really clear. We say it's not conditioned, it's unconditional. The happiness, the love, the intimacy, the sense of space and freedom isn't dependent on the particular conditions. So I could be in that place that would normally push my buttons and I would be judgmental or reactive or afraid or whatever, but it's not a problem now. That's the kind of freedom that begins to be seen, felt, experienced, discerned, right? So he, Guy uh, continues writing here, this is not to say that other meditation techniques are less important or helpful, only that awareness is at the very center of sentient life. Whether our attention is directed to awareness itself or we use awareness to know objects, the essence of meditation is the same, awareness. And then he quotes Ajahn Jumian, who was a well-known, one of the elders in the Thai forest tradition, which has been quite influential in what we call here in the West, insight meditation or Vipassana meditation. So this kind of meditation that flows out of Theravada Buddhism, the Buddhism, you know, and which is quite diverse, Theravada Buddhism, nowadays often called early Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism that flows out of Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Laos and Cambodia. So Ajahn Jumian, one of the elders in the Thai forest tradition, um, said, the best way to develop a great awareness is to rest your attention within that knowing space of consciousness in the pure space of knowing. Now here, pure can be sort of a triggering word like that can lead to striving. So more, or maybe a, a better word for some of us would be simple in the simple space of knowing. If you understand and can rest in this pure, this simple knowing, that is the place of the deathless. <coughs> and the word deathless is a word that's synonymous with freedom, nibbana, the unconditioned. Right? Because deathless means from an existential point of view, the reason that word is used, because being beyond birth and death is a relief. And being subject to the idea of birth and death, mortality, is sort of a thorn in the heart, isn't it? 
Like, what do I do with this idea of death? Or, you know, to make it more visceral, like Alzheimer's, losing my capacity to take care of myself, being dependent on others to care for me, becoming incontinent, forgetting everything, you know? So that these, like, you may be fine with that because you have, we have this romantic idea that I'll be asleep and I just won't wake up. You know, we have these sort of, but death implies, birth and death implies everything in the middle too, right? So deathless means the whole process of birth and death we don't have a problem with. Like I was saying earlier, I'm okay being intimate, including with the messiness of loss or the messiness of not being able to remember your names or whatever comes our way of a body getting older or relationships falling apart or seeing injustice and the stickiness and the um, ways and culture that patterns of hate and patterns of fear replicate themselves over and over and division and hate you know, and exploitation and oppression continue over and over. And seeing this and having our hearts broken by this and somehow thinking one of two things, that adding hate to the mixture is the way to go, you know, blaming, hating, or disconnecting is the way to go, as opposed to actually being intimate and responding from that place, being fearless. Maybe this heart has the capacity to feel whatever I'm feeling, to see whatever I'm seeing. And we have to hold that as a possibility. It's not like something we impose on our heart. You will feel everything. You will see everything. No, that's the kind of violence. But just staying open as the heart finds its way. Because remember, the heart or wisdom, love, whatever you want to call the sort of better angels of our heart and mind, that's not self either. That's just a natural process, doing the best it can to navigate this life. Same with the forces of ignorance that are playing themselves out. That also is a natural process. Because it isn't, right, it's a natural process. There isn't a one thing here, me, who is either good or bad, you know. It's like a lot of things. I'm sure you've noticed, like when we're honest, we see there are a lot of things playing themselves out in our heart. Some of them we're not that proud of. Some of them, hopefully, you see as real real expression of beauty and goodness. But whether it's horrible what's being expressed in your mind or through your actions or really beautiful, it's a natural process, not self. And that's what Ajahn Jumian is pointing to. From this pure, this simple consciousness that's unmoved by what arises, you can see the phenomena of the world, which all you can see the phenomena of the world, which all have the nature to arise and pass away. Phenomena show their dhamma of impermanence, this natural process. And this is the dhamma of the deathless. So we're realizing a non-grasping, right? When we realize that this is a natural process, we realize a non-grasping. And this can freak out people like as a philosophical idea, but the world needs to be fixed. So how could non-grasping 
be a good thing when the world on this relative level is so imperfect? It's a, it's a really legitimate question. <clears throat> and that's where this frictionless, this capacity for intimacy and responsivity is so important. Because, so there's sort of two general, this, these are on the level of philosophy, two ideas about spiritual life. One is, we've got to make the world perfect and then we can be free. right? And the other idea, now again, just as a philosophical idea, there's no way to make the world a better place without being free. Free from fear, for example. That the freedom is necessary to engage. Like uh, one of the funny things, useful I think, but funny things that uh, Sayadaw's, the sort of elder male monastic teachers in Burma would say um, to the young women who turned out often to be some of the best practitioners in terms of deep insight, is like it's really hard to be a mother without at least the first stage of awakening, right? Deep insight into all of this being a natural process. So it became a thing after Mahasi Saida sort of changed things in the 30s and 40s and 50s, 1930s, 40s and 50s, and invited lay people into the monastery to practice with the monks and nuns. It became a thing for all young people, but especially young women, um, just mostly, I think, because it was a patriarchal culture and they were less rebellious, to come in practice for a few months or even longer you know, and have really deep insight because it actually made it easier to sort of live the lives they had to live in that culture raising children and doing, you know, patriarchal culture, not having that many options. Still that way to a large degree, even today. So it's sort of like, oh yeah, it isn't easy showing up, engaging in a fearless, fierce, beautiful, creative, nimble way when we're afraid, when we have this existential fear of being apart this existential fear of birth and death, this existential fear of not being good enough, wanting to be better, how we're seen. But when the mind really sees that stuff, understands that stuff as just being part, an expression of a natural process, then it knows how to be intimate. It knows how to not be confused by all of that stuff. And that's what will really help change the world. And it's not that we sort of like, well, I'm not going to empty the garbage or clean the bathroom or make amends for that stupid thing I said because I'll wait, I'll take care of it when I'm totally free. (laughs) It just turns out that waking up, I mean, if we're really in a difficult place, it's not easy to use it for practice. But if you're relatively fortunate you're not completely overwhelmed by war or oppression or poverty, right? Then you can use a lot of the ordinary joys and sorrows in your life as the ground for practice. Oh, this is something being known. That's all this is, something being known. It's empty. This moment, this difficult moment is empty of anything else but this feeling being felt, this sight being seen, this thought being known. And to begin to discern, to immediately in that moment sense a little bit more freedom in how you engage, uh, 
how you feel into what's happening, how you trust the softening and the dropping of armor, and how the clarity, a little bit more clarity, and the nimbleness, creativity of the response. And that will build, build the trust in this way of being. So there's more to say. I'll pick up this topic next Sunday. But uh, see, we have time for one or maybe two comments or questions that folks might have. Yeah, Tom, you want to start us off? Mark, this is going to go back to the earlier part of your talk today, but it's come up several times for me in the past. And one night down at my farewell prison visit, I was talking to the inmates there, and I was talking about no self and thoughts just being thoughts. And it just went into disaster because all these questions like, well, those are my thoughts. Those are my thoughts. And I couldn't answer the question really. And so what I wanted to ask you for for clarification maybe is that there are times when you have thoughts that might be pretty dark, you know, and that was some of the things I was hearing down there. And they'd say, that's me thinking that. And I, I just wasn't sure what to say really. But if it's, I can say, well, those are just thoughts being known. That's just a natural process. But where, maybe it's not even a good question, where do those thoughts come from when they're so opposed to what I might believe but are very dark? It's hard to think that they're just floating around out in the universe and I happen to catch them on my antenna. So Yeah. Well, everything's lawful and conditional. and I mean, we can't, there are at least maybe someone with a like a Buddha with a really developed mind, but generally speaking, we can't read or sense all the conditional or causes and conditions behind what shows up, including despicable or dark thoughts that might show up in our heart, in our mind. But because what we can, the part of life and experience that we do read, it really confirms that everything is lawful or conditional. Nothing just happens there always there's always something behind what shows up in experience that has conditioned or has in a sense caused that or supported the arising of that particular thought but the to kind of get back to your earlier point like how do we begin to trust that it's just something being known it's just working with more neutral experience and building the confidence like when we're watching the breath coming in and out, or we're watching seeing, or we're watching the experience of hearing, and we're just, instead of being lost in our thought about what we're hearing or seeing or feeling as sensation, we're training the mind to trust our direct experience. And in terms of our direct experience, what is actually happening is something is being known. That's all we can say about any moment of experience. Something's being known. And if it feels like it's more than that, that's when we realize, well, whatever that is that seems to be more than something being known, it's probably a picture painted by concept, which is just that concept being known, right? that mental idea being known. Right? So we're not imposing, we're not imposing a different belief where it's much more about grounding in our lived, direct, immediate experience. And it's a real shift of allegiance. 
Generally speaking, human beings have a very powerful allegiance to the meaning their thoughts project or construct. And we're shifting that allegiance to our direct experience. What is our direct experience? Well, if you look right now or any moment in, of any, I mean, at any moment, you'll see that if we're really honest in terms of trusting our direct experience, the description is something's being known. That's what can be said about our direct experience, that something's being known. But it's very tricky because thought, and this is a really important thing that you could have brought up with the inmates that you were working with, because thought often, most often, especially if it's charged, comes with a feeling, like an emotional feeling. And so... The reason we think thought is so much more than a thought being known is because it has a strong feeling. But that strong feeling is just a feeling being felt. Oh yeah, that's that yucky feeling being felt or that pleasant feeling being felt. So we can recognize the elemental nature of feeling, that kind of emotional, visceral thing, the sort of mental content, the picture or idea, the sound, the sight, the touch, the smell, the taste. And any moment of our lived experience is really nothing more than the mental thing being known, which includes that visceral uh, emotional flavor and the five physical senses being known. And it's a real radical shift. This is not a small turning of the mind. When the mind realizes this in a moment, it's a real, that's why I like the phrase shift in allegiance. It's like we become we have a glimpse of this path that we didn't have before and, and suddenly we know better how to practice. And it generally takes a long time to really get some intuition that that's all there is, is something being known. So this is a powerful shift in practice. And this is the piece to emphasize for people. Don't argue about whether there is or isn't a self. Just get them curious about, yeah, but what's happening right now? Tell me what's happening right now. Oh, this is being known. What's the flavor of that? this? Is it emotional, like yucky feeling, pleasant feeling? Oh, yeah, okay, so it's a pleasant feeling being known, right? Oh, yeah, pleasant feeling being known. So really help train people's minds, train our own mind, right, to just get in this mode, this honest and direct mode about experience. You don't need the language that I keep repeating. This is being known, this is being known. I have to say that to kind of create an idea. And then you use that idea in a more direct and immediate way to recognize the truth of what that idea points to. It is just this, whatever you're feeling, experiencing, seeing, touching, smelling, hearing, being known. That's all it is, moment to moment. So it's a profound simplification of what we're taking this to be. So it already has a lot of that, you know, when we say emptiness or there's, it's just this, no self, without the words, which is so much better, right? Seeing that it's just this being known is what we need to understand, not the philosophical idea that there's no self. We're almost always going to get pushback, except here, People know not to push back. 
until they don't. You know, and someone says, what's all this stuff about no self? Because it's so different than our lived experience because we're mostly living inside of the story of self. So that's what that's the water we're in. We're swimming in that water all life long. We live through our stories, and our story always involves ideas of me and other, self and other. So don't worry about that. You don't have to get rid of those stories. It's just going to be a shift of what those stories are, right? Those stories are useful in terms of culture and relationship. It's just about understanding what those stories are and what they're not. And the net result is more intimacy, more profound sense of belonging. Because as useful as our stories are on a relative level, they also have the side effect of reinforcing separation and fear and difference and all kinds of things that are toxic in our society. We have to leave it here. It's 11.50. So we'll just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. Appreciate the simplicity here. Let things be as simple as they are. Something is being known, something's being felt. Can that be okay? Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.